Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Harvest. If uh, this is your first time with us, a special welcome to you. My name is Lee, and I have the privilege to serve here as the lead pastor. We are starting a brand new series, as Danny mentioned. We're calling it Rugged, and I'll explain a little bit about what that means here in just a moment. But in that, we're going to be walking through the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles or your digital device, go ahead and open up to the book of Malachi. We're going to get there in just a moment. From the time I was actually pretty young, I was always enamored by extreme athletes. Uh, I can remember by age 12, like watching the Ironman triathlon on TV, just amazed by the, the pure mental fortitude that these athletes had to push them to such extremes, um, that people would actually push themselves to the point of pure exhaustion where they'd faint in the middle of the race or, or just seeing people barely able to stumble across the finish line, thinking to myself, like, I would love to see if I could do that at some point in my life. There was just something that always grabbed a hold of me, just thinking about how far we can tend to, to push our humanity, how far we can push our bodies. And uh, as I kind of got older, I kind of got into that as, as long as my body allowed me to do that. And so a couple of the things that I really got into is every couple of years, my family and I, we would take a vacation to the National Park of Yosemite. And I'd plan a major, major, let's put it, I'm going to see how far I can push myself type of hike. And uh, I'd plan, I'd train, I'd prepare for this. And one year I said, hey, I'm going to do two peaks and one hike. And so it was 27 miles round trip. I climbed Clouds Rest, and then I came down the mountain, went back up and climbed up Half Dome, the famous dome that you see from pictures of Yosemite, and made it back. And thought, that was awesome. Next time I come back, I'm going to see if I can go even beyond that. That kind of craziness led me into doing 24-hour mountain bike rides. Um, where I'd actually go and race 24 hours on the mountain bike all night long through the desert just to see how far you could go. And I can remember the very first time I got invited by some friends, hey, we're going to go do this. I think it's going to be awesome. There's about 3,000 people that show up in the middle of the desert and they race. And I thought, cool, count me in. And uh, I went out there and I can remember very vividly at 2 a.m. going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. Like, why did I give up my good bed, warm, you know, bedroom, my sheets? Like, why did I give that up to get out here and do this? And the whole time I'm riding at two in the morning going, I will never do this again. This is stupid. It's 28 degrees. I could be home. Why am I'm exhausted? My body's cramping. I no, like this is dumb. And just to find out, I did it repeatedly year after year and added more races because I'm just that kind of stupid, I guess. Um, but there's none of that compares to a certain athlete that I've been watching over this past year named Ross Edgerly. For some of you, that may be a brand new name you've never heard of. Um, Ross is British, and uh, he sees himself as a ultra-marathoner sea swimmer. That's kind of how he describes himself. Um, to kind of put it into perspective, he recently, back in 2018, he broke a world record, uh, which honestly, he didn't really break a world record. He kind of set the standard uh, because nobody had actually even come close to accomplishing this before he actually did it. He swam the longest, what they call staged sea swim in 2018, when he became the very first person in history to swim around Great Britain. He literally swam around the island of Great Britain. 
1,780 miles. And he accomplished it in 157 days. Um, I love his response. A reporter, when he gets out of the water after completing this ridiculous task, how was it? He, three words, it was brutal, <laughs> right? His schedule, just to kind of put it into perspective, Ross's schedule in order to do what he actually did, he swam straight for six hours, he rested for six hours, he swam for six hours, rested for six hours for 157 days straight. That's ridiculous. Like that takes it to a different standard. Um, he swam, he decided to see if he could set the longest continuous swim in the Lake of Loch Ness, you know, the famous monster lake. Um, he swam, and, and get this, the warmest that water gets tends to be about 41 degrees Fahrenheit. Cold water. He went 52 hours straight without stopping. Um, extreme. Like when, when you begin to just, that's just beginning some of the things that he has been able to accomplish physically. When I think of rugged, Ross is the person in the image that comes to my mind. Um, there's just a different level of extreme, a different level of athleticism, a different level of mental fortitude that you see in this, this man. Uh, as we're going to walk through the book of Malachi, Malachi is a really, really fascinating conversation. Malachi is actually the last book in your Old Testament. And Malachi is a messenger of God. He's considered to be a prophet. God uses him to deliver a very specific message to his people in this stage of history. And Malachi does so, and then there's this 400 years of silence that takes place before the Messiah, before Jesus comes on the scene. And so you get the Old Testament, Malachi, the last moment where God kind of has this prophetic, miraculous conversation with his people, and then 400 years of silence, and then Jesus shows up on the scene. God's people have been waiting for the Messiah for a long time. They've been looking for God's like provision in a miraculous way, that he's going to set up his kingdom and that he's going to rule them. They were looking for this moment, and then 400 years goes by. When you begin to understand it from our perspective, you think about the words that God would have spoken to his people and then all of a sudden been silent for 400 years. These words were very important words. And if I were to describe this moment that Malachi has with his people, you're going to see God show up in a fatherly way. He has a father's heart. There is a tenderness to God in the way that he engages his people. At the same time, there's a level of sternness. There's a level of, hey, I need to have some very important conversations. I'm going to speak truth to you. You may not like the truth, but you need to hear this. We can probably all think of moments that we've had those conversations, whether or not it was with our grandfather or even our own dad. Maybe they didn't do it perfectly, but you can remember like, oh, this is a serious conversation. I better listen. This is not the moment to kid around, right? If I kid around, I'm going to get a shoe to the side of my face type of moment. Think about it this way. Like, this is the moment that God is having with his people. It's, I need to have this conversation. We need to get some things set straight. This is serious. This isn't a moment to, to kid around, but he meets them exactly where they are, which is important for us to note. This is really the big idea for us today, but honestly, this is the big idea for the entire series. 
when we think about it, is God meets us where we are to bring us to where we need to be. No, no matter what you walked in with today, the, the, whatever wrestle, whatever confusion, whatever questions you may be wrestling with deep down inside of your soul, I, I want you to know that God is able, God is capable, and he's more than willing to connect with you exactly where you are. But God loves you enough not to leave you where you are. He loves you enough to help you get to where you need to be. And he's going to help you actually move that direction. Now, Malachi, his ministry takes place in a really interesting time. It's, I would classify this as a challenging time in the history of God's people. The Israelites had just returned from Babylonian exile, where they had been held captive by the Babylonians. They had been moved out of their land, their city, their ways of worship. They had been kind of forced to be accustomed to an entire new culture, language, you, you name it. Now, through God's provision, God raising up leaders, they've been able to come back. They've actually rebuilt the temple, their place of worship, place for them to come together and worship the true God. And yet in the midst of this, the people are disillusioned. They have lost their spiritual fervor. In a way, they're spiritually asleep. They become disillusioned. Their faith has grown cold and they begin to question, they begin to grumble, and they begin to question God's love and faithfulness to them. We, as you read through the book of Malachi, you'll actually see some of these themes come out. For instance, we'll see that they grow skeptical of God's love. We're going to take a look at that today. They became careless in how they worshiped God. They were indifferent to truth. They became disobedient as a result of that. They became faithless in their marriage, and then, then they became very stingy in their generosity. And so we see that those become kind of markers to spiritual slumber. If those things become true in our lives, there's a moment where we may need to kind of become honest with ourselves and go, God, what is it in me? What is there something in me that needs to be dealt with? I'm here. I'm, I'm going to challenge you wherever you are to be willing to listen to what God is doing and what he's actually wanting to say to you. It is in this situation that God begins to have this conversation with them. And my guess is no matter where you're at, even on your own spiritual journey today, there's going to be moments of the conversation just even today, but throughout this series, as we study the book of Malachi, that I think your soul's going to resonate with. Because let's be honest, we all wrestle with doubt from time to time. We all question, probably, God, kind of, how, how can this be true and you still love me? How are you really good? Like, we all, we're, we're human. We, we have these moments where we wrestle, we doubt, we call into question. Now, as we open up Malachi, and we're going to read through the first five verses today, God ultimately, I want you to hear this, God ultimately is the one that is speaking here. The messenger is Malachi. He's the mailman. But God is the one that's speaking. And, and as you begin to think about this, the message that you're going to see God speak is a message of love. Yes, there's moments of admonishment. There's moments where he brings a rebuke. But it's love. And in that love, there's hope. And there's restoration. Malachi's words, God's words here, were meant to awaken the people from their own spiritual slumber. 
and he wanted to prepare their hearts for who would come 400 years later, Jesus. He wanted to waken them up so that through generation after generation, they held on to the hope that the Messiah, the one that was promised, will come. His message is not a message just for the past, but I believe it is a timeless message for you and I today. It really is what we're going to see as we open up. It's a call for you and I to examine our own hearts and realign our hearts with God's hearts, beginning to understand his purpose, his value system, so that we begin to value the things that he values. We're going to spend about six weeks studying through the book of Malachi. I'm going to challenge you. Through the next six weeks, would you commit to reading the book of Malachi one time every week? For the entire entirety of our series. I promise you this, you can probably read through the entire book of Malachi in about 15 minutes. So I'm, it's not like this massive, crazy long book that you're going to be spending hours a day trying to get through just to be able to keep that commitment, okay? I'm asking you though, would you just, would you commit to try to read through the book of Malachi one time every week throughout this series over the next six weeks? And that will help us in, in how we personally come in the room and we connect, and we prepare ourselves to hear what God wants us to hear. Let's go ahead and pick up Malachi chapter 1, and what we're going to see is this, again, this call to rugged discipleship, this willingness to to get dirty, to go beyond, to, to grow in our spiritual fortitude, our strength of how we actually pursue after the heart of God. So let's, let's take a look at this, starting in verse 1. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's just kind of the beginning moment, setting the stage for what's going on. So when you see that word oracle, what it literally means is that God is burdened by something, that there is a burden on God's heart. God here in this moment, what we're seeing, the way that Malachi sets this up is that God is burdened for his people. He's burdened for his children as a father would be burdened by his children. God is burdened for their relationship or the lack of strong relationship that exists right now. And Malachi is ready to reveal the Father's heart to his own people. The intention here by God is to to build a relationship with them. His intention with you, and what I want you to hear today, is God has a desire to build a relationship with you. Right where you're at. No matter what your background, no matter what your experience with church or with God, whatever it may be, God wants to build a relationship with you. And he wants that relationship to be a healthy relationship. And the reality is the healthier that our relationship is with him, it bleeds into every other relationship that we have. It helps us when it comes to how we relate to our spouse, for those that are married. It helps us relate to our coworkers. It helps us to relate to other family members. It even helps us relate to that crazy Uncle Joe that nobody knows how to talk to, right? We, we all have that member. We all have these people that are challenging for us. But the, the key to unlocking health in, in those challenging relationships is it first begins to make sure that we have a healthy relationship with God. And so God has a burden for his people. He desires a relationship with them. He desires, he desires to have a healthy relationship. And so he has this word for them. God cares enough to speak truth, which is important for us to know as well. 
And, and so this is significant. This book right here, I want you to understand this. This book is unlike any other book that has ever been written or ever will be written. There are a lot of words, there are a lot of books that are written about God. There are a lot of things that carry worldly philosophy. There are a lot of words that have been written about religion. There's a lot of things out there that are speculation. This is not, get this, when you open up the Bible and what we're about to continue to read through, this is not a word about God. This is the word of God. And when we open it, we want to receive a word and understanding of who God is and what God is wanting to do in our lives. This is important because what he is claiming, he is, he's, Malachi is claiming this is the word of God. So God is communicating to us. You're hearing from God. You're receiving a message, an instruction from God as you open up his, his word, as you open up the Bible. So let's see this incredible thing. And notice God's incredible approach to how he begins to enter into conflict, starting in verse 2. And, and how you start, how you enter into conflict is very important. It's like firing a gun, right? If it's pointing in the wrong direction, it's going to probably go off very badly. A harsh startup in any conversation, when you're, especially when you're dealing with conflict, moves things into the wrong direction. Where does God start? He starts with love. He starts with love. Take a look at this. Verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. As you read through the book, God is going to take some of their accusations. Like they, they have these list of things that they're creating that they have against God. And God loves them enough, he answers them all. But he doesn't answer them by attacking them. Some of you need to hear that. You need to understand that perspective of who God is. God is loving. He is truthful. God is just. But he's going to meet you in grace. So he answers them by loving them. Now, here's what we need to know. If you're angry with God, if you have questions with God, he can handle it. He can handle it. For some of you today, the freeing thing that you need to understand is no matter what it is, no matter what your wrestle, no matter what your question, allow him to hear it. He can handle it. He can handle it. He's big enough. God's people, they're not atheists, but they're angry. They're frustrated with God and what God has done or how they perceive God has dealt with different things in their life. If I were to describe Israel in this moment, they've created an Instagram of God fails. And they're, they're, they're posting it out there everywhere around them. God has failed me by doing this. God has failed me in this. And they're just making this long list of all the things that God has done them wrong. And yet the interesting thing, again, God loves them. He loves you. He loves me. He loves them. And God responds to them. So he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And the way that they respond to him, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Like, really? I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? 
God here is a father. They're accusing him of not loving them. And actually, as you read through the book of Malachi, they're going to say over and over, God, you don't love us. You haven't blessed us. You love, and it seems like your blessing falls on all the bad people out there. For some reason, things are hard for us, but for those people that don't know you and they just do it, it seems like they're the ones that are always blessed. Have you ever wrestled with that? Sure. See, it's like, God, it seems like you're taking care of our enemies more than you're taking care of us. And as a result, you have no use. We just have no use for you. It's like in their heart, they're choosing in this moment to, to make judgment. They're, they're at a point prideful enough to feel like they can assess the entirety of the situation and be like, God, you wronged us. And you know what, God, you need to apologize to us. That's where they're at. That, that's the point of their contention. That's the point of their heart. They're hurting morally. They've decided that they have the right to rebel against God. They're hurting spiritually. And it had gotten so bad that some of their theological teachers, some of their preachers, to use that term, have created a, tho- a theology where God has been the failure. And they've inverted the storyline to where they are good and God is bad. They've inverted the story to see that God has failed. Therefore, they sit at the seat of judgment. They've determined, they've decreed, God is wrong. God is the one that needs to repent. God needs to apologize. And maybe we'll forgive them. Now, we need to test ourselves here. How would you answer the question? that was posed in your own life. How would you, if I were to ask you, how has God shown your love, his love to you? How would you answer that question today? Which side of the spectrum would you fall on? Would it be easier for you to name all the ways that you feel God has wronged you? Or would it be easier for you to name all the ways and make a list of all the different blessings that you've received in God's life? Our tendency seems to be just as humanity, we like to focus on the negative. We like to focus on all the things we don't have. Right? It's fascinating. I see it even in my own kids. My seven-year-old, this Christmas, he wanted one specific thing. And I, I, I've got to love the stores because they're brilliant at the way that they put things on shelves, right? We were walking through Sam's one day, and he just decided, I've got to have this helicopter. And it was this helicopter. It had all these figurines. And it was, I'm not kidding, it was about this big. And, and every day, every moment, he's just... I want the helicopter, I want the helicopter, I want the helicopter. Like every time we go to Sam's, or if he knew one of us was going to Sam's, can you get me the helicopter? And we just re- reminded him, like, bud, Christmas is coming. Like, don't worry about it, Christmas is coming. And we're walking through Sam's one day, and, and it's getting close to Christmas, and I was like, let's, let's get the helicopter, we'll, we'll surprise him with it. And, and Josh is with us, and so we were like, okay, why don't you do this? Like, you go in the back of Sam's, I'll sneak off, I'll grab it, I'll buy it, I'll walk out to the car, I'll hide it in the car, 
I'll come back and we'll see if he even notices I was gone, which he didn't, um, which I don't know if it's a good thing or not, you know. Um, I'm gone for 10 minutes buying this, going through lines, stacking it. I'm excited, and I come back, and he doesn't even notice I'm gone. Um, we're, we're getting ready to check out, and, and he's, he's starting to throw a fit. Like, I want the helicopter. I want the helicopter. Like, I, you guys don't love me. I want the helicopter. And the whole time I'm going, buddy, you, if you only knew, like, I already bought the helicopter. Like, it's in my car. Just chill. I wonder how often we do the same thing with God. Where we're sitting there, we're complaining, going, God, I want this. I need this. If I only have this, then I know I'm blessed. God, I need the helicopter. And God's going, I have it. It's not Christmas. Just wait. Right? But because we don't have that thing now, we assume our circumstances we allow our current circumstances to define how we see God's character. And because I don't have it now and I want it now, God, you've wronged me. Don't miss. God has it all figured out. We talked about even last week. Time is nothing to him. He's omniscient and omnipresent. He lives outside of the way that you and I see the world. And how often do we define our understanding of who God is and what God is doing based on what I want and what I see right now? Don't fall trapped for that. So how would you answer that question? How have you experienced God's love? Do you see God loving you? I hope so. I I don't doubt that there's a little bit of that wrestle in every single one of us. And so we do it, it would be good for us all today to understand, take a look at how God answers them. When they ask God, how have you loved us? Now here's one, a couple things you'll see in the way that God answers them. Learn from God. Like here's, this is a side tangent. Learn from God in how he deals with conflict. The first thing that you'll see that to help relieve tension in this relationship, God first connects before he corrects. Look for opportunities to connect before you correct. The second thing is, God knows what's being said, what they're thinking, and what they're doing. Oftentimes, even as parents, we know what they're saying, we know what people are thinking, we know what our kids are doing. Don't look past that even in God's perspective of what he sees and what he knows in your life. So they ask, God, how have you loved us? He answers it this way. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered... But we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says. They may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let me pause there. 
You might sit there and your first reading of this is going, did God really say that? Like, I didn't think God hated anybody. So what in the world, like, how do we interpret this? How do we understand this from an understanding of who God is, God's character, how he chooses to relate to you and I, how this plays a role in our life today? Let me, let me, let me take a moment. Let's break this down a little bit. What God is doing is he's entering into talking about their family. They understood their genealogy. They understood their history. And he's bringing, out a, he's bringing into their present context an understanding and acknowledgement of where their past has been. And he's saying, this is how I have loved you. I have loved your crazy family for generations. See, God chose to make a name for himself among an adopted group of people that it began with a man named Abraham. Abraham had a son. That son was named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They were twins. Jacob and Esau were born, and the way that we see it laid out in Scripture is that Jacob was holding on to Esau's leg as they came out of the womb. There was a perspective, like there was this tension, this wrestle that the two brothers had from the very, very beginning of being at odds with each other. Now, the interesting thing is they were totally different personalities as people. Esau, the only way I could describe him is he's a man's man. Like he drove a big diesel truck. He was an outdoorsman. He loved to hunt. Like that's Esau. He was, the way the scripture in, gives us a perspective of him, he was a hairy beast. Probably not a very good-looking baby. Jacob is a mama's boy. He wanted to be around mom. Mom coddled him. Mom, that was mom's favorite. Esau was dad's favorite. Esau, being the firstborn, even though they were twins, he was the first one out of the womb, was the one to actually receive the father's blessing, to be the heir for the generations that were to come. And what you see is Jacob is a trickster. Jacob ends up tricking Esau out of his birthright. And as a result, he receives the blessing of the father to be the heir for the generations to come. God was at work behind the scenes here. Obviously, God is is working providentially through this situation. And what we begin to see begin to actually take place is that out of Jacob's offspring, we find the line that leads to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But there stays animosity between Esau and Jacob. Both grow into a great nation. Both stay at odds. Edom, the Edomites, are the heirs of Esau. And we see even as scripture plays out that there were times that the Edomites would actually partner with with enemies of Israel, the heir of Jacob, to try to overthrow them. Like this animosity went through for generations. And so God is bringing back to Israel their heritage. He's speaking about this is who you are. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, guys, as a nation of Israel, don't miss the fact that you are in the air of the blessed one. 
You are the offspring of Jacob. You are in the heir of the one that will come the savior of the entire world. From a worldly perspective, as you look at this, you may go, hey, you've loved him, but you've hated Esau. It's not that God hates him in the way that you and I may think and we may interpret hate. Basically, what he's saying is, I've chosen to bring my blessing through the line of Jacob. Esau, I'm allowing him to deal with life the way that he has created it. And he's going to face the consequences for the actions that he's chosen. To walk the way and to give away his birthright. And he's now going to face those consequences. God brought grace in a unique way. How? Why? I don't know. God's ways are not our ways. And I'm okay with that. But what we have to begin to recognize is God, they were both bad dudes. Neither of them deserved God's grace. But God intervened. And God chose to bring salvation to the entire world through the line of Jacob. It's a good reminder for you and I today. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us have done something enough to earn it. We can't perform to the standard that God deserves and even the standard by which God demands. God chose you and I. He's loved us enough to bring salvation in a way that's tangible, relatable, and real through the person of Jesus Christ. And so we are able to stand here and we sing and we worship and we praise and we do what we do as a church because of who Jesus is and what Jesus came and he accomplished on the cross. And so even now, we're going to take a moment today and we're going to just pause to reflect upon that very, very truth. That God loves you. God made you. And God meets you exactly where you are to take you to where you need to be. But it all begins when we learn to say yes to Jesus. To give up and allow him to do that. And so as Danny had talked about before, the, the elements over here, if you missed them, as you come in, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and grab the communion elements. Communion is a time for us to, to reflect and to remember who Jesus is. There's nothing magical. There's nothing mystical that takes place during communion. On the top of the cup is a little wafer. In the cup is a, it's just grape juice. But what they remind us of are so important the roots of our faith. And the church has together been doing this over the centuries from the very, very beginning. The wafer reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for you and I. The grape juice represents his blood that was poured out so that we could find forgiveness, that our sins could be covered, that we could enter back into a right relationship with our creator. And I recognize for some of you here, you may be new to the spiritual journey. First of all, we're glad you're here. We pray for you. And, and maybe this whole idea of communion is a brand new thought. First of all, we invited you here with the hope that you would connect with Jesus. I would hate to ask you to do something that means nothing to you. And so during this time, you don't need to feel pressure to take communion. But I would challenge you to do this. Where you are today, would you just say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? And I believe wholeheartedly that God will actually answer that prayer. And he'll connect with you at a very personal level. 
for the rest of us, we're just going to pause. The band's going to sit here, and they're just going to allow some music to... And on your own, I'm going to encourage you to just take a moment, connect with the heart of God, tell him thank you for what he accomplished, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And as you feel led, feel free to take communion. The band's then going to lead us through a kind of a closing song here in just a moment. But let me pray for us first. Lord, we love you. We need you. We thank you for the love that you showed us. That while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And so even now, Lord, we take time to just remember or to reflect. And we thank you that you draw us unto you. In your name I pray.